Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is The Stacks Book Club, where we are discussing We Cast a Shadow by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. Our guest is the wonderful Chris L. Terry, author of Black Card. And yes, there are some minor spoilers on today's episode. So please, if you haven't read the book, take a moment, read it, and come back and listen. Before we dive in, I want to remind you, in the show notes, there's a link. That link will take you to all the books discussed on today's episode, as well as the social media accounts for the stacks and our guest. Plus, if you shop through the links on Amazon, you're helping to keep the stacks free. If you're in need of a book recommendation, send us an email at askingthestacks at gmail.com. Myself and my guest will read it on air and give you a personalized book recommendation. So email askingthestacks at gmail.com with your name, what you're looking for, and maybe a few titles you've loved or hated. If you like the stacks and want to support the work we're doing here, here are a few easy ways you can help. Join us on Patreon. You earn perks like our virtual book club and you get to connect with other listeners of this podcast. Plus, you get to rest easy knowing your contribution helps make this show possible. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks and be a part of this fantastic community. The last thing you can do is the easiest. Subscribe to The Stacks. Leave us a rating and a review. Plus, you can tell folks about this show. Tell your mom, your book club, your local bookseller, the cute girl sitting next to you at the coffee shop. Please do not be creepy. Tell them all about The Stacks. If you like the show, scream it from the rooftops or at least from your Twitter page. All right. You've been patient. Now here it is, my conversation with Chris L. Terry about We Cast a Shadow by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. All right, you guys, I'm back with author Chris L. Terry. Chris's book is called Black Card. And today for the Stacks Book Club, we are discussing We Cast a Shadow by Maurice Carlos Ruffin. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited. So before we dive in, I'll do a quick recap of the book. Oh, anybody listening, we're definitely going to spoil this book. So if you haven't read the book yet and you want to read the book, pause the episode, finish the book, take your time, and then come back and listen. If you don't care or you have read the book, here we go. We Cast a Shadow is a satire set in the near, near future. I think that's what he calls it. In the South of America... American South. 
in the city is the name of the location. And it follows our narrator. And he is a lawyer. He's black. He has a white wife and a mixed son. And he is trying to be black. <laughs> I'm like stuck. And he, so basically in this world, there is a process called demelanization, which makes black people no longer black. It's, it changes their nose and their features. And he's trying to become a partner at his law firm so that he can get this done for his son. And it's all about um, race and race politics, but it's told in this satire kind of, it's kind of like a, it's not a, not a romp. What do you call it? Like, it's kind of like, it's almost like an action movie kind of like there's a lot going on. It's very, it moves a lot. Yeah. That's not the best description of the book, but <laughs> we'll dive, you, you can try or we'll dive deeper. But basically it's a satire about race in the near future in Amer- in the American South. Yeah, there's a lot of like madcap stuff going on. Yeah, there's a lot. There's like a ton. And there's a word we're missing here. Yeah, two writers and. Um. Yeah. No, I'm not a writer. Oh. I'm just a professional reader. Okay. <laughs> I like you can't sing. I can't write. I'm a terrible writer. So that's the book. What did you think of the book? I liked it. I think um, I like satire, and I think it, it does uh, something that good satire does, that great satire does, and that. It presents this ex- exaggerated world that it initially seems kind of grotesque and implausible and unsettling. And then the further you get into the story, the more believable it is. And mm. like the closer the parallels between, you know, real life and the, and the story become. Um, and I think that it does, this does that really chillingly well. Um, also, sometimes I think satire uh, can skimp on character. And the main character is just a very, very layered person who has clear motivations and you kind of walk this tightrope of like understanding where the narrator's coming from and feeling sorry for him, but also really hating him because he's kind of a monster. Yeah. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. I definitely want to talk about, about our lead character. I really liked the book. I felt like pretty much from the beginning, Maurice Carlos Ruffin is super smart. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes when I read a book, I don't necessarily trust the author or I don't, I'm not into their writing. And I think, I'm like, I don't know. I don't like this book. I'm not into it. Like I can have that opinion pretty much right off the bat. And in this book, I felt like even though I didn't know what was going on quite right away, I was into it because I could trust him because I could tell he was smart. Like I could tell he put thought into this book. And there were little moments in the beginning where I was like, "Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm with, I'm going to go with this guy. I'm going to see what he's up to. And I'm glad that I did because I did really like the book. I think you're, he brings up a lot of things and simplifies them and complicates them in his use of satire. And I think that that's hard to do. I think sometimes satire can be reductive and sometimes it can complicate too much. And I think he found a good balance, especially in talking about race, which feels so complicated and simple sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he really, I don't think he was scared to get in there and get dirty. With mm-hmm. his work, you know, like kind of go into the darkness and see what he could find. Yeah, I, I feel like he definitely kind of observed everything going in every direction. Yeah. And shared some of these really minute observations that made it feel all the realer. Yeah. And even like with certain clever turns of phrase, like, what does he say? He likes his coffee so black that the police would plant evidence on it. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. 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 And he, ha- he does a good job of getting good like jokes in like that. Yeah. Because, well, I'll, we'll just start right here. Satire. 
I think satire is obviously super hard to write or make, period, whatever whatever the thing it is that you make. I think it's hard because it requires a level of subtlety and really obvious shit. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Like you have to be like gentle with your touch, but you also have to say things that seem so ridiculous as to be satirical. And I think I miss it a lot when I'm reading satire. I don't. I can understand it better if I'm watching a TV show or a movie or a play. But in reading, I've had a really hard time. And the more of it I read, the better I get at reading it. It's mm. almost like a muscle. But I think the first satire book I ever read that I can think of was The Sellout, mm-hmm. and I liked that. Yeah. But I think I missed a ton of it. I mean, that The Sellout, Paul Beatty's work, it's always so dense, and like that guy never misses a chance to like make a joke. You know, take a jab at something, right. go off on a riff, and I mean, I think it's to the point where, especially in the sellout, like the the riff is is the book, you know? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I'm trying to think. And then I read Black No More, mm-hmm. which is very similar. Have you read Black No More? I have. Yeah, and yeah, it's very similar premise. This getting rid of blackness, like get literally taking away your black skin. Yeah. So so Black No More uh, to the uninitiated out there. Oh, it's, yeah. I think it's from the Harlem Renaissance era. Yeah, nineteen thirty-one. Yeah, and George Schuyler was the, the author, um, and he was almost like a, a troll before there were trolls. Um, <laughs> he was like a kind of conservative black dude. Yeah, and it's it's a book about a black doctor who comes up with a pill or a medical process that'll turn make black people into white people, and this messes with the ideas of white supremacy in the world, and it just kind of ripples out. It's, right, and I feel like his conclusion is often that like. People will do the most self-serving thing at any juncture. Like that was his point. Right. Yeah. But I had a hard time with that one. I didn't think that one was very funny at all. I nope. couldn't really get into it. I was doing the like bitter, just like, ah, this is messed up type of laugh. There but were a few parts where I was like that, but I, I, I don't know. I just was like, I don't know how to read satire. I'm doing this wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that book, it's, it, it's very like exposition heavy and kind of a summary you know, mm-hmm. and so it, it isn't like you have the chance to really get entrenched in it in a way that like humor can sneak up on you, right? right? Yeah. And you kind of knew where that. I felt like I knew where that book was going the whole time. Yeah, like <laughs> everyone's gonna get it, and everyone's gonna be white, and then we're gonna have to deal with that. But in this book, yes. it wasn't. In We Has a Shadow, it wasn't that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where he was going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there are just just more layers to it, and that's how like some of the humor, like I was talking about earlier, managed to get snuck in. And sometimes you even see where it's going. And this is one of those books. Um, I had a similar thing with new people where I'm reading it and just like wishing and like yelling, no, at the narrator, <laughs> being like, you know, don't do that. Don't do you know, that. Like, whatever he's like lying to his wife and in, in, in a, we cast a shadow and sneaking around and like manipulating his kid into doing these treatments that the kid doesn't want to do. And it was just, Oh, it was so hard to read. Like, yeah. 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 But I also, I could relate to him. I was kind of, I felt like I was supposed to dislike him more than I did. Uh huh. Well, I, I I related to him too, and I, I knew we weren't supposed. To, why do you feel like you were supposed to dislike him more than you did? I don't know. I just I felt I felt that maybe other people would think he was a bad guy in reading the book, and mm-hmm. I didn't think he was a bad guy. I thought he was trying to do his very best. Yeah, and that's he, and I got what he was trying to do. Yeah. He's trying to protect his kid. He doesn't want his kid to go through 
a lot of the same stuff that he's been through and that he's seen other black people go through. And right. since he's been through the ringer of white supremacy, he's moving his kid toward whiteness. Right. right? Like he thinks that that's is what's going to protect him. It's that self-hatred that comes from being on the receiving end of racism for your whole life. Right. Like, and I think that's relatable for, for anyone who's dealt with racism. Right. Well, right. I mean, isn't that what all parents do in some way for their kids that they try to make life better and or easier and or less sexist, racist, homophobic, whatever it is for their kids. And if there's a way to do that, that's what they do. Yeah, I I, I do think so. And I, I, I mean, I think about this demelanization process as being kind of a, me- a metaphor for a lot of those decisions that parents have to make. And, you know, I have a five-year-old. I've been thinking about this. Like a lot of the times where I'm trying to make what seems like the best decision for my kid's future, it often is winds up with him uh, like, like a lot further aligning my kid with whiteness, hmm. like choosing an elementary school and being like, well, this one has the best, like of these types of test scores and this and that, but, oh, this doesn't have the racial diversity that I'm really comfortable with. Right. You know, that it's like, well, you right. send him to the quote unquote good school. And then he's like, going to also get some damage from being around more white people. Right. Yeah. Right. But then what do you do? Where did you send him? Uh, I ended up sending him to the quote unquote good school. Right. Yeah. Because you can send him to the school that's not as good. Cause then what if he doesn't get as good of an education and then he's SOL for the rest of his life because he didn't learn how to read at two. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you want to like prove a, use your kid as like a test case to prove a point with your politics or do you want to try to put them on the path of least resistance? Right. Right. And how much time do you have to do the work with him if you do send him to the school that's maybe not as good? Yeah. And then also, of course, what makes the school good? Right. This is true. So, <laughs> yeah. So, no. Yeah. I mean, so this school is definitely, there are some ways which I would maybe consider it bad. Um, yeah. So, I'm, that's, that's where I'm doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. But, right. So, so for me, our lead character, who also, like your book doesn't have a name. Right. Which I, I thought was interesting. I, I, I was going in tribute to Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Mm. And I think that Maurice Carlos Ruffin was doing the same thing. I think yeah. there are some parallels between We Cast a Shadow and Invisible Man, probably. I have heard him on an interview say something along those lines. Yeah. That he was inspired by it. It's I, yeah, I think to be someone who's writing about, you know, I mean, if you think of blackness as being there's a theory that like blackness needs whiteness because the idea of blackness is like a reaction to whiteness or a product of right, white supremacy. And if you're writing about blackness in that way, then I think you're going to have to be thinking about invisible man because the whole premise of the book is that like you kind of lose a sense of yourself um, in the white gaze. G A Z E. Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard blackness needs whiteness, but I have heard that whiteness needs blackness, (laughs) which is slightly different, but the same. Well, like that you can't be a white, you can't have white supremacy without something to be superior over. Yeah. It's yeah. the same thing, but I've just never heard it said that way. I've only ever heard it said that there is no, there is no whiteness without black, brown, otherness. Yeah. I think they, they need a, they, they need someone to shit on. They need a permanent underclass right. of some sort. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, I hear a lot of conversations about like, you know, blackness outside of the white gaze or like decentering the idea of whiteness in the conversation about blackness. You know, our experiences aren't just the ones where you, what makes us us isn't necessarily 
our dealings with white people and the racism that we experience. There's other stuff. Right. You know? Well, I think that also is super American slash colonized yeah. black spaces. Yeah. Like I wonder for people who come from majority black countries or cities, I guess, places, um, how their relationship to whiteness functions versus American black, which is what I can speak to. So I'm sure it's also true in places in Canada and the Caribbean and South America, but just this idea of the white gaze in those spaces is different than the white gaze. If you are in, I don't know, Ghana or something, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that's a totally different situation. And there is, and not that there it was colonization there too, but it's different. Yeah. That white gaze is coming through a telescope. From, yeah. From away, yeah. Most people, most white people have left. I, I talked to my dad about this. My dad is black, my black parent, and he grew up in the Jim Crow South. Um, where did he grow up? Uh, Richmond, Virginia. Oh, okay. And I was like, so yeah, dad, what was, what, what was it like being in such a racist place? Like, what was it like being around white people or, you know, like white racists? a place that was so explicitly racist. And he's like, well, I just wasn't really around white people. You know, I was, you know, we were, it, it was very segregated and I went to an all black school and everyone we knew was black. So white people were kind of a distant concern. Right. At least when he was a kid, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, that, and that, I think, so Maurice Carlos Ruffin is from New Orleans. Yeah. Born and raised. I think has lived there his whole life from what he said on what I heard him on. Um, but he does reference, he did reference that New Orleans, it wasn't until he left New Orleans to travel and do other things that he really even understood this idea of pl- places that were not majority black, mm-hmm. spaces that weren't majority black. So I thought that was interesting considering how much of this book is focused on white people's understanding of black bodies. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that's like pretty much everybody. I mean, also because we're watching our our lead our protagonist and he's narrating to us so we're getting everything through him yeah but it, this book is so focused on the white gaze yeah i mean it is it's this it's this character who's kind of leaving the fold of blackness and is venturing into the white world in different ways you know uh, marrying a white woman working at this white law firm um I, I, I'm not, I, and it, it's about all the, a lot of the pitfalls that come with that. It's kind of like that he dealt with enough racism that he felt like this was, this was going to be the right path and it's definitely not working for him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And he, well, also Maurice Carlos Ruffin is a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. I know. I've learned so much about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'd love to talk to, I wish we had a lawyer at this table also so we could hear like how much of this kind of inside baseball law firm stuff is true. You know, I, I think in the major law firms, like the big, the big ones, it's like 3% people of color, like 5%. I think yeah. it's pretty true. One of my friends does diversity work at a big law firm in another city. Yeah. And, and she said like her, her job is pretty much convincing like wealthy, older white men who had success doing what they're doing, that what they're doing is messed up and wrong. And right. it's like, and they're also argumentative lawyers. So it's like, so it's a nightmare job. It's a, it sounds like a she's very stressed job. all the time. Yeah. She, she, <laughs> she's, she's, she's made for it and she likes it and she's good at it. I'm sure. Right. But that can't be an easy job. No. Yeah. No. Imagine your job is just telling people that other people exist and that they're important and they should be treated as such. And <sighs> those people are just telling you no. Yeah. That's because that, I don't want to give up what I have, man. Yeah, that type of emotional labor is is exhausting. Even like I think about that being 
like a black person who's lived around a lot of white people. It's like often having to be like the stand in for all black people and put your foot down. It's like, oh, I got to do this again. You know, why, why couldn't this have happened after lunch when I was feeling better? Right. Yeah. Right. No, it's so true. I think, well, I wonder, let me ask you as someone who is mixed, yeah. you know, you travel in different circles than someone who maybe is all, all one thing. I don't know whatever that means. I'm <laughs> sure. saying that very sarcastically. If you can't, if you can't see my face, but <laughs> Do you feel like you have to answer for your whiteness as much as you have to answer for your blackness or vice versa? Like, do you feel like there's one that you're defending more or sticking up for more? Hmm. That's, I, I feel like I need to defend blackness in general more mm-hmm. just because you know, black people are constantly under attack. Mm-hmm. Personally, I, I think it varies. Um, there are times when like usually black people can tell that I'm a mixed race black person. Right. And, uh, on the occasion when, when they can't, then there's kind of a light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, yeah, you are black. Duh. Okay, fine. Um, there are black people who can't tell that you're black. Yeah, yeah. It varies. I don't know those people. Fair enough. <laughs> um, and so, so, I mean, I think white people are, you know, they're used, they're used to white being normal. It's the, it's the white supremacist culture. Like, right. So why, why would they have to think that anyone wasn't white? You know, it, so like... So then they'll assume that I'm white and then say some anti-black shit. Um, and I have to right. stop that. Because white people often think that you're white. White people are more likely to think that I'm white than black people are. more are, Yeah. But like they, they'll talk about black thing. They'll talk disparagingly, disparagingly about black some X, Y, Z in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And it isn't always explicit. Like, you know, I hate black people. Type right. of stuff. It <laughs> could course. be like some subtle, subtly racist stuff that I kind of need to be like, that's not cool. Like, Huh. And it's also the question of like, would you have said that around a different black person? Or am I like the safe one that you right. can take these risks with? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So that I don't get that, obviously, because I look black. Like yeah, darker I, my, I'm darker skinned than you. But I get some version of that. But different. Not I get more like, oh, you get it. Like you're we talked about this last week. Like you're not that black. Uh, right. Like yeah. I get I get that, but I don't get casual racism because they people think that they're in closed company. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and I do. I do get the kind of like, but you're not that black. I remember um, at, at a, a couple jobs back, I was taking a walk around the block, and I I, I paused for a minute to look at my phone because I was like, I'm a pretty fast walker, and I was coming up behind a group of white women, and I didn't want it to look like I was like mm. following these white <laughs> ladies. <laughs> um, and one of my friends from work pulls up. It's like, what are you doing? You, you having a, a phone interview for another job? What's going no. on? I'm like, no. I, and then I just told him we were close enough that I could be like, yeah, I, I didn't want to be walking up on these white ladies. And he's like, but kind of look like a white dude. I'm like, yeah, but I've, I've got all this stuff in my head. It's ingrained in me. And right. I don't always kind of look like a white dude. Well, Maybe also men right shouldn't now. be walking up on women like that in general, period, yeah. regardless. I'm the most scared when I'm alone outside in the evening and there's a white man walking down the street. That yeah. to me is where I feel the most uncomfortable. Yeah? Yeah. Because I feel like white men don't have a lot of repercussions. This is like, true. They'll just do some crazy shit. Yeah. He's like on the way to go be in the Supreme Court or something. He's like, right. Like I'm <laughs> like, oh, you're going to do some crazy shit and then still like be the president. Whereas if it was a black yeah. dude, I feel like I'm like, you understand what it would look like if you were to harm a woman out in public. Like yeah. you've been taught don't do that shit. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. so I'm not, I mean, I live in LA, I'm near the Grove. Like, I'm not worried that, but if a white man were to walk up on me, I'd be like, ah, sure. get away. Yeah. Um, 
But that's also new. That's a newer thing for me. I don't know. Maybe because of who's in power right now. Sure. Maybe not quite that new, but it feels it's new. I don't know if I felt that way when I was younger, but I certainly feel that way now. Yeah, I think things 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 like that are getting realer and scarier. And, I, and ultimately, I try to see it as a silver lining that it's harder to deny that things are fucked up. Yeah, it's true because I prefer to have these conversations and not have people be like, "You're crazy," mm-hmm. right? Can't anymore, right? It's like <laughs> it's like you have to acknowledge me. This is a thing, but people still will gaslight, even mm-hmm. like even still. Sure. Even all that's going on. I mean, on the day that we're recording this episode, the president compared his impeachment to a lynching. And then Lindsey Graham decided to come out and say, it is a lynching. (laughs) That's not racist. (laughs) And like the idea that you have uh, enough education and wealth and whatever to be elected a senator and are trying to gaslight people who are telling you that that's that's not what this is. Wow. Like, you know, so it's I like that we're able to talk about these things more, but it doesn't mean that the people who are feel under attack by these conversations are any more receptive to it. Yeah, we're, yeah. Yeah, those minds are probably not really changing. They're not really changing anytime soon. Yeah. Though Shout out to people who want to have those conversations with those people. Yeah, yeah. Because I used to want to, and then I was like, I'm done. <laughs> it's more fun to have these conversations with people who are actually paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is nice. Like, it, I'm even talking about this former coworker. It was like, this is someone I can, this is a white person I can work on. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Well, that's so, my husband is white, and so I oftentimes... We'll, we'll be watching something and on the news and I'll just turn to him and be like, do you understand how this is racist? And I'll make him tell me how this moment <laughs> on the news is racist. Cause I need to make sure that he understands what I understand. Cause I need to make sure that I'm not the only person who sees it. I feel like that's really common for people who are in marginalized groups. Like you want to hear someone who is, I mean, my husband is a straight white man and he's a doctor. Like he's mm-hmm. all the freaking privileged <laughs> things in the history of the world. So when he will be able to, if he can validate something that I'm seeing or feeling, I'm like, great. I'm not crazy. Sure. Yeah. But I've also heard that from um, a lot of queer folks. I've heard that same kind of thing, like that they want to make sure that their straight friends also see that that's not a good thing that's happening, whatever it is. Yeah. Because if you have the privilege of not being part of that oppressed group, you aren't going to necessarily be as sensitive to it. You're not going to be looking for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. 
Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, back, kind of back to the book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I want to talk about the setting yeah. of the book. This near future southern city world. Yeah. What did you think? How did it work for you? I, it, it worked well for me. I, I know it's, it, it is irritating when a reader just assumes that like the narrator's autobiographical stuff transfers to the book. But I, hope, I thought it might be like a New Orleans type of city. I, you know, definitely read it as a Southern city and like the plantation type of stuff Yeah, felt very old, old South, old deep South in certain ways, like the lawyers having their events on the plantation, yeah, things like that. Um, I mean, there are, you know, black people are segregated all over the country, but it, it, it still, it still felt Southern to me and maybe kind of New Orleans, though I don't know a ton about New Orleans. I definitely think it was New Orleans. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think it was New Orleans because what you're saying, like the plantation and all that stuff. But also um, there's festival, there's like the festival life part of it that I feel yes. like is super New orleans yeah. And then also he, um, the prison mm-hmm. that the dad was in was Liberia. That was the name of the prison. And the big prison that's been forever, I think, in Louisiana is Angola, right? right. So yeah. that's why I was like, I think I, it's got to be that. <laughs> like, I think that that I... I assumed it because of the author, but then as I was going, I was like, okay, these are kind of validating my guesses. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I didn't need it to be a specific place. And I like that it was a little bit vague that, you know, you, I felt like it could be happening anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was doing some of my homework for this, I was reading an interview where he said like, it was easier to fictionalize New Orleans since New Orleans is such a kind of singular place. Right. That, like it would have just been so much effort to feel like he was doing it justice on the page. Right. Um, it made me think of that book, uh, Confederacy of Dunces by I've John. never – I started it, but my brother loved it. I didn't like it. it. That book cracked me the hell up. It's one of my favorite <laughs> books. I've heard that that's like the most New Orleans book. Is to it? A lot of people. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got like 50 pages in and then was like, no thanks. 
I, years ago. There are so many other good books out there. I'm not going to be like, you have to read it. I actually was thinking about going back. Yeah? Because my brother really loved it. And I probably I was probably like 10 or 15 years ago that he told me to read it. And I'm in a really different place in my reading now that I might like it. Um, I haven't read it in 10 years. I might okay. hate it if I tried it now, I know. Sometimes I'm scared to go back and revisit things I've loved because then you hate them later. No, I, I, like a, I like a narrator who is like, just so sure that what they're doing is correct and that they have the right take on things. Yes. Um, and they're kind of just blundering through the world like that. And Ignatius Riley, who is the narrator in Confederacy of Dunces, is like the perfect kind of mm. Will Ferrell, Ron Burgundy type of character who does that. And I feel like uh, Maurice Carlos Ruffin's unnamed narrator is also a similar thing that. where he has this he has this really specific and fucked up idea of the world that he's just working so hard to make come to fruition. Um and it's it's really not going well, and he kind of refuses to see it. Um, although I, I think like some of the humor in the book, it shows like this kind of nerves. Like deep down, you can tell that he knows that what he's doing is messed up. Well, there's a few times he says as much. There, I, there's a one chapter that really stuck out to me. Um, I even wrote it down. Chapter sixteen. Mm-hmm. It's the chapter where he talks about um, he talks about making his son put the cream on his face and and he's like I know reader you're probably thinking I'm a bad guy but and then he talks about the job application between John and Jane and and one I can't remember the name the black name like mm-hmm. Tyrone or whatever yeah. and Tyrone doesn't get the job and then Tyrone loses his apartment and then Tyrone and it like goes on and on and on yeah. and I felt like that chapter really stuck out to me as he's not as naive about he clearly not only does he understand racism but he also understands that it's systemic and that it's a bigger thing than just him getting treated different at work or his son getting weird looks Mm -hmm. so that chapter really stuck out to me there was a few parts where he kind of talks about i'm doing this not because i think that being black is bad i'm doing this because i understand what comes with being black yeah yeah, he he does have just just enough self awareness, and I think that was we were talking about format before. Like when I initially just read the book, um, some some of the humor didn't pop out for me as much. I read it as more of kind of like nervous, and you know, mm. like the narrator was sometimes popping these pills and seeming distant. But hearing the the audiobook version, the narrator like I think really hit the humor harder and made, made me see it in a funnier light. And I think also made the narrator seem a little bit more self aware with their read. That right. Was really helpful. Yeah, I think the narr- I, actually that chapter sixteen and mm-hmm. seventeen are the two chapters I listened to. So that's interesting oh, okay. that that really stuck out in my head because he does a really good job of reading that section. Yeah, that there's it's not very they're they're short chapters. I think those two are some of the shorter chapters in the book. One of the things that I thought was really cool about the setting, the near south, near future south, whatever, was that I loved how he would reference things that seem close to now as the way that we talk about like the civil war. Like there's a part (laughs) where he's like, my great, great grandfather back, you know, in the 1950s even. And I'm like, oh yes, like I get it. (laughs) There's like the old people that dress like nineties hip hop heads. Yeah. Like I loved that. I wanted more of that. If I had one like big critique of the book, my big critique was that while I liked how he didn't just do exposition the whole time, mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to know more about what differentiated or how we got to the near future from the world that we are reading it in now. Right. I kind of wanted to know what was the inciting, 
like I think he does talk about when the fence goes up around the Tico, that neighborhood, but yeah. kind of when did people start demelanizing? What sort of stuff changed from where we are to be where he, they were? I think it's already happening. Like, there's bleacher cream on the shelf at the pharmacy. Sure, but know? there has been forever, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I, I, I didn't feel like I needed it to be explained, and if anything, that kind of increased my sense of horror because it was mm. like this could easily happen just with whatever the hell is going on now. Sure, like we, we could. I could sneeze and look up, and this is what it would be like. Sure. Yeah, I agree. I just, I think I also just really like that world buildy stuff. Like, I like when authors, because you could, I mean, like I said, I felt like I could tell he's super smart guy and really mm-hmm. creative. And I think there were a lot of things that I definitely missed that he put in Easter egg type things. Sure. Like, like for example, Li- Liberia prison and Angola prison. I only knew that because I have a slight obsession with prison, books about prisons. Uh-huh. But I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know that, that you know what I mean? So like little things like that. I would have just wanted more of that from him because I want more of his brain kind of thing. Yeah, Do you know sure. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like not because I needed a reason why it was it, just because I wanted to hear how he would get there if he was telling us. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing, which is more selfish reader critique as opposed to real true criticism of the book. Sure. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I wanted to know more about this cool stuff is one of the best things. The best ways to criticize a book, right? Yeah, I just yeah. want more. I mean, I, I there are other things I could critique, but they that was the one thing that really I just wanted. I wanted more of the world because I wanted to know what was different and what was the same from where we are now. Because so much of it was similar. Yeah, <laughs> it was close. We talked a little bit about the lead guy, but I want to talk about Penny, his wife. Yeah, because she's kind of woke white woman, mm-hmm. and she probably is the most closely aligned socially, politically with what I think readers of this book see themselves as, right? She's the kind of her view on the whole thing is our son is perfect the way he is. Nobody needs to be changing their skin color. It's you're, we're going to be fine. We don't live in the ghetto basically. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. What did you think of her and that? Yeah. She she was like a, a, white progressive and like a, and a, 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 I, I, sorry, I'm not being very articulate. It's okay. <laughs> I agree that, that she is probably kind of a stand in for the reader a lot as, you know, a voice of reason with the, with this guy. Um, and that she is, you know, maybe is hoping that her, uh, like economic class will protect her some, um, but she's, you know, a, a loving parent who isn't like qualifying, her love or trying to change her kid. She's accepting her kid. Um, and that she is pushing back against what the narrator is doing. And someone needs to be doing that in the story. Yeah. Do I, we think that she's right? I, 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 I don't remember ever being like pennies out of pocket, you know? Like, right. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that her approach of just like, let's just love and accept and not see color. I mean, right. That's not going to make everything okay for their kid either. That's right. not going to end racism. Um, but I think it's way less damaging than like forcing this kid to <laughs> put on skin bleacher. And even some of the, like some, some of the pressures that the kid was under the, the scene where he has the meltdown, where Nigel has the meltdown mm. at the school toward the beginning. Like you get the sense that he just has a lot of external pressures, both like from school and from his parents. And I'm going to guess that that is more his dad's fault than his mom's fault. Yes. Yeah. I think that's true. But okay. 
So I have my dad's black. Also, my mom is white. Mm -hmm. And I think that my dad put pressures on me around my blackness that made me stressed out when I was younger Uh that I fully understand now and get and I'm super grateful for. Sure. And I feel like my mom was less concerned with that. And I wish that she had been more concerned with that as a child. What kind of pressures was your dad putting on? Well, was it- he would just say things like, you know, you can't go do the same thing that all those other little girls do because you're black, basically. Right. Okay. Like, you need to be careful. You you know, just shit like that. Like, yeah. like we would go to, we had, there was like a mm, quick mark mm, 7-Eleven type store. And he was like, you need to make sure your bag is always closed when you're in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got similar talks as like well. Like shit like that. Like- that's, you know. Clearly yeah. about racism. Yeah. And my dad would expressly say, like, you can't do the same shit as those other little white girls. <laughs> like, he <laughs> didn't have problems swearing in front of us, um, which is how I became who I am. But so I wonder, thinking about Nigel growing up, right, if that – I just feel like Penny is – Penny feels like she's doing it right to me because – I think that's how she's written. But when I actually think about it, and there is a part where Nigel says, I think maybe in chapter 16 or 17, he says, Penny is right until it's actually practical. Like until you actually are talking about someone arresting you at the quick mart for shoplifting because your bag is open and you're the black kid. Yeah, yeah. I don't see color doesn't work when you're dealing with racism. Right, exactly. So I feel like Penny is... To me, I was like, oh, I love Penny. Penny's so great. And then I kind of was like, why is this – why is our hero in this book that's all about race and racism and the white gays, et cetera, a white lady? Like that's – there's got to be more there. So then yeah. I kind of started digging in and was like, I don't know. Maybe Penny is – Penny's too soft. Yeah. I mean <laughs> someone, someone's got to – if you're a, a, a black parent, you, you need to teach your kid. You need to prepare your kid for – the racism that they're going to deal with. Right. And that's, that's part of your job, unfortunately. And the kid's not going to like hearing it. The kid's not going to want to believe right. that it's true because it's prohibitive. Right. Um, exactly. Like I didn't want to believe my dad when I was younger. So I liked my mom more when I was younger. Sure. And as I've gotten older, I've now I understand what my dad was trying to do. Yeah. And I think that comes back to, we cast a shadow being a satire is that like the stuff that the narrator is doing to Nigel is pretty much just like this exaggerated, book long version of like the, the talk about like dealing with police or right. yeah, keeping your bag closed at the store. Right. It's just, you know, it's ramped up. It's a couple shades brighter than that. It's a couple steps beyond it. Um, right. But it is, it is the same thing. And I think that the book is kind of shedding light on how messed up it is that we feel like we have to do that with our kids. Right. Yeah. But do you feel like, I mean, I feel like some of that responsibility should be on Penny. Yeah, I, mean, I think like in a perfect world, I guess we're trying to take it a little bit out of the book. But in a perfect <laughs> world, shouldn't the white parent also be reinforcing some of these ideas? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, yeah, Penny could easily be like, you, you know, your your dad's right. You should be careful around this, you know, group of white dudes hanging out outside the gas station. Right. Yeah, like they, they probably they could very well treat you differently because of the way that you look. I've seen that before. My uncle does this, that, and the third. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think that she she ideally could have, would have, should have been stepping up a little bit more than that. Right. But I think that that is kind of – like I think that that is – I mean, I don't know. I'm going to give I'm gonna give Maurice credit here, but I think that that's a choice, right? That yeah. he's put he's put our kind of 
bad narrator against this like perfect love cures everything mom versus a super skeptical, cynical dad. And I think that the answer is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is like every book everywhere and everything everywhere. Um, Yeah. There there aren't any clear cut answers in this book. No, certainly not. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) certainly not. I do feel like this book will age well. I think so. I think this book will have a life in 20 years. In thirty, like I think that this there's this conversation isn't going anywhere. Yeah, I mean it's it's talking about some it's saying some. I mean racism is pretty timeless, and that's, the stuff <laughs> yeah. it's addressing with race is is pretty timeless. Right. I mean that's yeah. why a book like Black Black No More exists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Still, like why it's something that I read in 2018. Yeah. Some of the other philosophies about race that come up, the narrator's grandfather has that whole scene with him where he talks about guilt your way into respect from white people, <laughs> which I, I never actually heard that expressly said that way, but it made a lot of sense. He was kind of talking about, you know, tell them that your cousin was killed by the Klan so that they treat you better. Like tell them a sob story or, and I thought, wow, sure. That's definitely a tactic. I've <laughs> never heard anybody say it before, but that is a tactic. Yeah, using the white guilt to your advantage. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one. And then one of the other ones, we said pennies was kind of like, the, you're perfect just the way you are and race doesn't matter. I don't see color. Um, but then there's also, I guess, sir and mama. Their thing was kind of like stay proud but follow the rules. Yeah. Which ultimately backfires because sir doesn't follow the rules anymore and ends up in jail. Yeah, and it's kind of the respectability. Well, I don't see them as like the total pull your pants up and get a job type of people at all. Like they're more activists, right? They're more rebellious, but the yeah, the idea that you can be on your best behavior and still get completely screwed. right. I think yeah. respectability politics is probably our narrator, yeah. or yeah, you're slight, right. maybe slightly even more like he's more conformist. Yeah, I guess, but he's kind of in that world. Yeah, I think you're right. And then there's the 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 black supremacist group, mm-hmm. as they're referred to by the white people, Adzi. Mm-hmm. And they're black power. I mean, they're the Black Panther Party, right? Yeah. They had the free lunch. They had all the community things. And then as things got worse and harder, they become – I mean, they they leave the Black Panther Party and become something slightly more extreme. But I think that's kind of where their origins were, right? Yeah, yeah. It seemed that like the, 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 the narrator's mom was definitely like a panther type. Yeah, like yeah. old school. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> um, there's no such thing – as a black supremacist group in the world. Right. That doesn't exist. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like, that's like re- calling something reverse racism. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like how they talk about black lives matter. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be the other kind of modern current comparison to Ad- ADZI. Yeah. Though until I l- listened to the guy say it, I was calling it AIDS, <laughs> <laughs> which I recognize is not right, but that's what I was calling it. It's A-D-Z-E. Yeah. Um, but the, the narrator said Adzi on the audiobook, so I've changed my tune. <laughs> um, would you watch this book? Like if it was a movie or a TV show? Yeah, sure. I think it would make a really I would love to watch it. Yeah. I'd love to see what they did with the setting. I think that would be Yeah. Because yeah. I, I I picture it as this kind of dystop, dystopian thing, but I don't think that I have to tweak the right parts of the right city to really share it. I'd love to see what they were wearing. Yeah. How people were dressed. 
Isn't the narrator's kind of like a dandy, right? He's definitely I like kind a creepy of, suit type of dude. Yeah, I kind of yeah. – if I was casting this, mm-hmm. maybe darker-skinned version, but I was feeling like very Will Smith. Kind of like corny, like put together, yeah. a, approved, white-approved white, white approved version of black man. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't – he might be – Will Smith might be too old now or whatever, but like – Wow, we're so old if Will Smith is too old. Well, he's in his 50s, right? That's true, yeah. And the kid is – I mean, I don't know. The kid's yeah. in his thir- 13 or whatever. So, no, he could, that works. Yeah. Anyways, but I was thinking like kind of a Will Smithian type person who oh, yeah. could play the narrator. Yeah. Corny, safe dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What ESPN might have called a cornball brother a few years ago. <laughs> right. Who, who said that? I forget who it was. Was it? Um, they were talking about um, Robert. The, the, oh, Robert uh, Griffin III. Yeah. Uh, they were talking about him and Russell Wilson. Okay. Right, and I think I think it was uh, ugh, the guy who's so terrible, Jason Whitlock. Was I it think, Whitlock who said that? I think so. I don't think it was Whitlock. Whitlock. It seems like he. I, th- I feel like Whitlock I'm, wouldn't criticize somebody for I'm being a cornball brother. Right now. I remember that was one of those. My my wife is white, um, and I remember like when when that was controversial. She's like, "Have you have you heard this term before?" And I was just kind of like, you know, I've never actually heard like actually heard it said like that, but I know exactly what it was as soon as I heard it. You're right. It's it was Robert Griffin the third, and it was um, Rob Parker who okay. said it. Rob okay. Parker. Yeah, I've never heard. I'd never heard the term until then. <laughs> but yes, a hundred percent. That's exactly who our narrator is. Hmm. <laughs> our narrator is not far from your narrator. Yeah, I think with a, a couple of wrong term turn turns rather, my narrator could. Uh, could become that narrator. But your narrator is, I feel, more pure of heart. I think so. And I think he's... Less traumatized. And, and more... Um, <laughs> I think he's traumatized, but in a way that has him... My narrator is a little bit more disenfranchised. I don't mm. think he's ever going to get his act together and become a lawyer. Yeah, he's a little more counterculture. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I guess technically your narrator is probably more like Nigel. Yeah, I, I'd say that yeah, Nigel might have more in common. Like the narrator's reaction is like, this is messed up. I need to get away from it and create my own world. Like and go be in a commune somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So Nigel <laughs> and, and Black Card, that's where they are. And yeah, we cast a shadow. It's more like, well, if, if they're in charge, we got we to gotta play their game and play it right, you know? Right. Yeah. I feel like the person who probably is the, is the closest to being right about the world, though she's not given quite enough space to do it, is Arminta. Minty, the girlfriend of Nigel, who and who like the little girl. Yeah, she's probably somewhere in the right place. Yeah, she's she's awesome, and it really pops when she's on the page too. Just like the first times that you meet her and everything. Yeah, I really liked her. And yeah, she's she's not scared to call bullshit on anything. On anything. Yeah, she's great, <laughs> and she's funny, and she's like Mr. Nigel's dad, and like I just I liked her. Me too. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I want to talk about for sure. That we haven't gone to. I don't know. Do you have anything? I think I covered it. I'm glad I got to talk about parenting a little bit because that I yeah. mean, it hit me hardest in my like. It, it hit me hardest thinking about being a parent and also like some of my experiences dealing with my parents. Um, right. So does your was, son? Yeah. Does your son have a hard time with race at all? Not yet. Not yet. He's, he's young. He's young. Yeah. So he's just turned five. And he is he is already starting to bump up against some of the kind of Eurocentric standards of beauty. Like he's definitely wish he had straight hair or blonde hair like some of the mm. in school. And that I mean, I had those same issues when I was younger. Right. So it pains me on multiple levels, you know. I really wanted we live here in Los Angeles, um, and I wanted to raise him around a better mix of people so he wouldn't feel like he looked different. 
Right. You know, and it's still like, for some reason, those straight haired blondes are still kind of centered in the conversation. Right. Well, because they're all over like the TV and stuff. That's true. I have a friend. Um, it's a gay couple, and the father is one of the fathers is black, one of the fathers is white. Mm-hmm. And the way they have two daughters, and the way that they did their family through surrogacy and with egg donation and everything is that one of the fathers has this was a sperm for one, and mm-hmm. the one was for the other. And but both of the daughters have the same or have a mixed race donor egg. So one oh. is three quarters black and one is one quarter black. That's the breakdown. But the one wow. that's one quarter black, black, she is like you. She's very fair. She has blonde, curly blonde hair, mm-hmm. but still look like if you're black, you you can see it. Yeah. You know, but if you're white, people think she's white. And I guess the girls were learning about the civil rights movement and the girl who's more white presenting said, oh, well, me and Papa would get to sit at one table and you guys would have to sit at a different table. Mm. Because she didn't really understand that it wasn't actually based on the color of your skin, but that it had to do with something much bigger. And she's seven. And I thought that was super interesting. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I remember being seven and being still being very unaware at that age, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you teach about the civil rights movement and you say black people and white people, but you don't actually talk about what classified someone in those groups right yeah like you don't actually talk about the invention of race and you mean you can't right fully to a seven-year-old talk about those it's it's complicated you can barely talk about it now yeah. uh, but this idea that she was like oh well we would get to sit a nice restaurant it was like well mm. Mm, so <laughs> um spoiler alert yeah <laughs> not exactly how it worked um okay the last thing oh, i do want to oh go I, I do oh um yeah i remember Explaining who Martin Luther King was to my kids. It was MLK Day. And okay. Like, you know, who is this guy? He was, he was president after Barack Obama? I'm like, no. Um, <laughs> okay, timeline's off. <laughs> yeah. Not, not quite. This was all the distant past to you, I know, because you're four. Um, and, and explained that, like, you know, how different people have different color skin. And he made it so that, like, he's helped to make it so that people with different color skin could, could have some of the same chances. And we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. And I'm, it just totally didn't land. Right. You know, his next question was just, like, about playing. Right. It was like, so I have to go to school tomorrow. Yeah. I tried to do the same thing with my niece. She was, she didn't get it. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Teaching race is hard because it also doesn't really make sense. It's true. Like to a child. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that it makes sense because it's so fucked up. Do you know what I mean? It's like not, it's nonsense. It's make believe. Yeah. It really puts holes in a lot of stuff, doesn't it? That's a really good point. So I feel like kids are like, I don't, I don't get this. While kids do understand inequality, like they understand when things are unfair or unjust yeah. on from a very young age, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But I'm trying to think. I don't remember ever being taught about Martin Luther King, but I'm, I obviously was. I mean, I know who he is now, but I don't remember that being – I don't – also, I don't ever remember a time of not understanding or knowing about the civil rights movement. You, you don't remember ever not knowing about it? I don't remember ever learning about it, like not having that information. I remember so we, had a, we had MLK Day assemblies at school, in grade school. Yeah. yeah. I, we had those too, but I don't feel like that was new information to me. Okay. So I must have gotten it at home before. This is a thing that I think about a lot. It's like, when did I learn this? Or do I remember learning about this time or this event? And most things I don't. 
well, my mom is Jewish. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't ever remember learning about the Holocaust. I always remember knowing about it. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't, and I know some people do remember those moments. But anyways, <laughs> like sitting here trying to go down memory lane. Um, the last thing I wanted to just talk about quickly is the title and the cover of the book. Yeah. What do you think? Good stuff. Um, I think the, the, the shadow is good. We cast a shadow. It's like what you might leave on the next generation. Mm. Um, it's what, what, what you kind of, the shadow you cast on them. Um, and, you know, living in the shadow of racism. There's mm-hmm. the shadow. It's in, a, you know, Nigel's uh, birthmark is, could be a shadow in a certain right. way. It kind of brings that to mind. Um, That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So writery of you. Oh, thank you. I was just thinking like, we all cast a shadow. It doesn't matter what color we are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that too. (laughs) I don't don't remember being – usually when I see the title in a book, I make a note. I don't remember it being expressly said. Is it? Do you remember it? I don't remember it ever actually being like, and so this and that, and we cast a shadow. Yeah. walked away. Like I don't remember it being a sentence in the book. I don't either, which I like. I mean – I like both ways. Um, I really like the cover. I'm, I'm cool with it. Yeah. I like I, monochrome stuff like that. Yeah. And I think it's kind of that to me is gives a little hint of like the dystopian or something's not quite right. Yeah. So to to the uninitiated, it's um black and white cover and it's got like an apple and all over the apple and all over the the background that's almost looks like a wallpaper. It's the silhouette of a young person with short hair. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a cool cover. It is. The whole a novel in blue ink on the side there, it looks like someone hand wrote that on there at the library. Yeah. I don't love that, but I, I think I like the pop of color and it works well, I guess, to balance the blur. Right. Do you have to write a novel if your book's a novel on the cover? What is that? I don't know what the deal is, but yes, you do. You do? Well, I don't know if you have to, but that's what they do. They do. Both of my novels have a novel written on them. <laughs> I don't get it. You don't write a nonfiction on a nonfiction book. Yeah. Like or like a book of poetry? Do you write? I guess you write poems. Poems by, short stories by, oh, stories by, I guess. essays by, nonfiction. Are by. people so dumb they can't figure it out? Yes, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Again, Chris's book is called Black Card, or Chris's most recent book is called Black Card, and it's out in the world. And same with We Cast a Shadow. But if you've gotten this far. Good for you, I guess, but you should have read the book by now because if you've gone this far, we basically, I mean, we didn't really spoil too much. No, I didn't, we didn't really talk about the ending. No. So get, get in there Honestly, get the, the ending was fine for me. It was good. I was okay with it. It wasn't a sticky. There was an ending earlier. There was a different ending to the book mm-hmm. that would have been just fine by me, okay. like maybe like 30 pages earlier okay. and I would have just been fine. But Either way, we didn't talk about the ending. We didn't talk about any major events that take place. So we didn't really spoil it. Anyways, Chris, thank you for being here. Tracy, thanks for having me on. This has been great. Yay. And we will see you guys in the stacks. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode and a huge thank you to Chris L. Terry for being my guest today. Find everything we discussed on today's episode in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us over on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash the stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks. Mm-hmm.